0: we are starting a new series called Discovering Jesus. So it's postponed a week. It was supposed to be last week. Um, last week came down with sickness. So thank you to all of you who loved us, who came and brought us meals, who sent me texts, checking in on me, it meant the world to us. We have the best staff in Andy and Lucas who helped carry the load on such a short notice. So grateful for everybody that's here. We have a great staff, grateful for you guys. But we're starting a new series, called Discovering Jesus. So we're gonna be in the Gospel of Mark, and you're sort of the heart behind this, this series, all right? We hear a lot of things. I mean, Jesus is everywhere, all right? So whether you truly believe in him, whether it's just a casual belief in him, or it's something that you've given your whole life to, there's a lot of different ideas about who Jesus is and what he did while he was here on earth. So here's a few quotes just to kind of give you a little innuendos into this, all right? So this is from John Lennon. I'm sure one of these you can relate with or you've heard, and there's a sense of, okay, yeah, I I, I get the scatteredness of where our society is with who Jesus is and why we're doing this series. So John Lennon said this, I believe in God, but not as one thing, not as an old man in the sky. I believe that what people call God is something in all of us. I believe that what Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha and all the rest said was right. It's just that the translations have gone wrong. So you get this hint of universalism when it comes to God and Jesus about who he is and what he has done. Um, A country favorite, Tim McGraw. Here's what he said. I'm not bashing on these people. These are just hopefully they're examples of ways that we've heard things about Jesus. So here's what he had to say. I know if I told you what God looked like and felt like, then I'd be telling you a story. I just think we don't know. God manifests himself, herself or itself in a way that we need it, in a way that we can grab a hold of, in a way that we can put our arms around. So you get this hint of mysticism about who Jesus is or about who God is and his re, his relationship with us and then you have the beloved Sylvester Stallone who says Jesus is the inspiration for anyone to go the distance. I don't know what that means. But, you know, like we can have this idea that Jesus is the shot in the arm, he's the inspiration that like helps us take the hill with whatever we're doing in life. You have this full litany of ideas about who Jesus is. But here's the thing, like we know that Jesus truly was here on earth. He made very clear claims about who he was. There are very specific things that he came to do in his life and ministry. And the thing that is so beautiful about Jesus is we don't have to go, and we don't have to try to do a lot of research to find these things about Jesus. We have these very clear descriptions about who Jesus is in the four gospels in the Bible. And we want to look at the one that's the oldest, the earliest. It's the Gospel of Mark. And we can go and we can look at very true accounts about who Jesus is. And we can discover who Jesus is in God's Word. And so we're going to spend up until Easter walking through the Gospel of Mark, looking at certain instances so that we can discover who Jesus is in a very historical account. People that that laid eyes on Jesus, people who put their their fingers in his hands and his side after his resurrection, people that saw with their eyes the miracles that happened through Jesus's life and ministry, people that sat under his teaching. We get to hear all of this recorded in the gospel of Mark. So that's what we're going to do through the next 10 weeks. Um, I'm gonna read the passage that we're looking at tonight. This is Mark chapter one, verses nine through 11. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, you have a hard copy then seat back in front of you, but the words are also gonna be on the screen so you can follow along. I'm gonna read this aloud. I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And then afterwards, you can say, thanks be to God. Here we go. Three short verses, 53 words in all. Here's what it says. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, And was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we ask that as we wrestle with these, the story about Jesus, that One, you would come and that you would speak to us. I pray that your word would be opened up to us in fresh and new ways. I pray that as we look at the life of Jesus and these accounts that happened in his life, that it would move us. I pray that the beauty of who Christ is would shine before us. And God, we pray that we leave this place with a sense of love and intimacy and depth in our life and relationship with you. when we came in here um, was different. So Lord, would you speak to us, be here with us? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So I'm gonna say something that's a duh for all of us, right? The arch in St. Louis is a staple. Amen? It's a staple, all right? So one of my favorite things about homes here is the entryways. So a lot of homes have the arched entryway. You know what I'm talking about? Your home may have this. So it's like the rounded top and then you have the rounded door that you open into. I love it. I think it's beautiful. You got the red brick homes with the arched entryways. Just gorgeous. Now, have you ever wondered, well, if you've looked at this, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just me, but hopefully not. When you've looked at it, there's usually like one stone that's different from all the rest that's at like the height, the middle of the arch, you ever notice this? Ever wondered like why? So here's here's the it's called the keystone. All right, this stone, yeah, right here. You got the keystone. Did, did it show you the other picture? Okay, great. Um, so the that's the keystone, right? And so it looks different from most of the others that are part of the arch. And here's what it does: it's a wedge shaped piece that locks the rest of the arch together. All right, so the other stones depend on this keystone for the support to bear the weight of the whole entire arch. So without this, the thing just collapses if you try to put any type of pressure or load on the arch. But with this keystone, it locks the whole thing in together, all right? So the passage that we're looking at tonight contains what, the, what Bible scholars discuss as the keystone event in Jesus' life and ministry, which is the baptism of Jesus. They're saying if without this historical account of Jesus' baptism, a lot of what we read throughout the rest of the gospels is just, it blows your mind. But without the support of this baptism, the accounts that happen within this baptism, all the rest would just kind of collapse in Jesus' life and ministry without this account of what happened in Jesus' baptism. And so tonight, as we're looking at this I want us to wrestle with the historicity of it, but also its implications. Here's what one of the authors um, for a commentary I was reading this past week said about Jesus' baptism. He said, it's the event that empowered Jesus to not only speak and act for God, but as God. So here's, it's historical all right, we know that this is something that truly happened for a few different reasons. It's in every gospel account that we read in the in the Bible. All four gospels, they talk about Jesus' baptism. Jesus references it it, when he's questioned about his authority for the miracles and teachings that he's doing in his life in ministry, Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. If you wanna go read that, you can read about this. He makes reference personally back to his own baptism. We also know it's a historical account because... At the requirement of Judas's replacement, so after Jesus' resurrection, Judas goes and he kills himself, um, and they need to find a replacement. One of the requirements for his replacement is that he had been a follower of Jesus since his baptism, since Jesus' since Jesus's baptism. You can go read about it in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. So we know that this actually happened. All the things that we're about to discuss, the things that we just read, these are historical accounts that happen in the life of Jesus. So beyond these accounts, we also know that there are literally hundreds, if not thousands of people that have come out to the wilderness to be with John, to experience the baptism of John, this baptism of repentance, where they're clearing up their life, they're making way for this coming Savior that's going to come into this world. They're literally saying, I've, I've done wrong, I'm ready to receive the goodness of this Savior, we know it's all a historical account because of these different things. Now, what is it about Jesus' baptism, though? That's so crucial to his life in ministry. Why is this such a big thing? Why is it a keystone? If if this didn't happen, why would the rest of Jesus' life that's placed on the arch of his ministry, why would it collapse without this keystone event? Well, it's in this passage that we see first that Jesus is Is God's Son. In merely 53 words, Mark recounts three experiences that happened to Jesus that prove he is the Son of God. So here's what I want us to do tonight, all right? As we're looking through this text, I want to look at these three evidences that Jesus is the Son of God that come from his baptism. And then I want to conclude with why this is good news for us. This is something that's so crucial to Jesus' life and ministry, who he is but it's also crucial to us. So I want us to wrestle with both of these things and I believe as we wrestle through it, we're gonna leave this place realizing with a greater sense of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, all right? So we're just going to do this in sequential order. We're going to look at what these three different occurrences that happen in Jesus' life at this baptism. We're going to talk about the significance of them, and then we'll look at it, why it's significant to us. So, all right, as we're diving into this, I want you to try to just imagine that you're there. If there's hundreds and thousands of people, imagine Jesus, like you're in the line to be baptized I mean, we were at Disney World. The lines were just massive, like hundreds and thousands of people. Imagine you're like in this line ready to go get baptized by John in the Jordan River. And as you're there in line, and like you have all these people that you're at least aware of, you recognize them. If not, you're like going to do this baptism with some of your own friends. You have Jesus that walks up to be baptized. He's walking up. There's nothing, what the Bible says, there's nothing that seems overly exuberant about Jesus. He just seems like a normal guy. And as Jesus gets there, he goes down into the water to be baptized. And what we find here is that things just start happening. There's something different about Jesus's baptism than all the other accounts that they've seen that have taken place with everybody else that has shown up. Something happens when Jesus is baptized. And the first thing that Mark reports is that the heavens are torn open. The heavens are torn open. Here's what he says. As soon as he came up out of the water, so Jesus has gone down into the water, John has baptized Jesus. He's bringing him up out of the water. And as he's, as he's coming out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open. Now, How is this evidence that Jesus is the son of God, right? What, what does that have to do with this? Well, consider the words that Mark is using here, Right. He says the heavens were torn open at Jesus' baptism, all right? So there's instances in the Bible where the, the heavens are opened. If you look in the Old Testament, there's a book, Ezekiel, he's a prophet. Whenever Ezekiel was brought to God's people as a prophet, it said the heavens were open and he had visions that God had given him. So we have accounts where the heavens were open. There's also instances where there's, these idea of tearing open, this is the language that's talked about whenever the Exodus happened and they're going through the Red Sea the way it's talked about when it says parted, it's actually like the waters were ripped apart, they're torn apart. And so there's instances of things that sort of happen like this throughout human history prior to Jesus. Now, what's the difference then? So here, here's the difference, all right? So whenever all these other instances happen. It's because there's like an example of God's placement on their life. And so there's this power and the significance that kind of makes them seem set apart that takes place on their behalf. But here's what happens with Jesus. Instead of Jesus parting open the Jordan waters, what does he do? He just enters in. He walks into the water and he goes to John to be baptized and as he's being brought open, brought, being brought out of the water, Jesus doesn't do anything. There's no tearing that he does. There's no proclamation that comes from Jesus' mouth. No, it's actually God that's doing all the work, and it's not Jesus that's doing the work, and it's significantly different than what has happened in previous occurrences in human history. Jesus is, comes out of the water and God rips open the heavens in order for God to speak into his life. Literally all heaven breaks loose as Jesus comes out of the water. You see, at Jesus' baptism, God tears open the heavens to be with his son. That's what's happening here at the baptism of Jesus. God is ripping open the heavens in order for him to come and be intimately present in the life of his son, Jesus. Here's kind of like an occurrence that I can relate it to, all right? So my oldest, Seth, he ran cross-country this past year. I helped coach his team. We went to these cross-country events. There's usually like crowds and crowds of people that are there to watch their kids because you bring like numerous amounts of teams that come and run this. And so they're really cute. They get up on the line. They, the gun goes off. They go run the race. He gets to the finish line, and there's usually like this crowd that's at the finish line that are watching kids finish. And so as he's finishing, he comes through. You go through the tunnel, and you kind of lose him for a little while because you have to go through the line, get like your little award like a ribbon thing for running the race and then you get out. And so you're kind of like, to get back to them, you have to work your way through the crowds. And so I I, I ran cross country, so I'm ecstatic. I was just like off my mind whenever we are going to these cross country events. Man, when he finished that thing, I'm like breaking through, I'm tearing open the crowds in order to get to my son and I'm like lifting him up and I'm like cheering with him, I'm excited with him about this cross country race. That's sort of like what's happening here with God at Jesus' baptism. He rips open the heavens and he comes in, he's, Intimately present with Jesus. What is opened cannot be, can be closed, but what's ripped open cannot easily be put back together. What God is doing here at Jesus' baptism, he's ripping open the heavens, and now he's, Jesus has this unique presence of God in his life for the rest of his life in ministry. If you read throughout the rest of the New Testament, you see that all the barriers are broken or ripped or torn open between the access that Jesus has between his father and the father to him as his son. He has unlimited access. There's deep intimacy that you see in the life of Jesus. I mean, if you look at the rest of the gospel accounts, you see that the disciples and other people, they marvel at his authority that he preaches with You see Jesus getting off from the crowds and he spends significant time away from the crowds as they're coming close to him. The very thing that you and I would do the opposite of when people are coming at us, the multitudes, popularity is growing. Jesus abandons it to go be with his father and his disciples see this. They see his getting away to be with God, his intimacy that he has with God in prayer and they come to him and they approach him. like Jesus, teach us how to pray. We've never seen anybody do this like you before. There's this depth, Jesus, and this intimacy that you have in your relationship with God. We, we'd never seen anything like this before, Jesus. teaches how to do these things. And it all starts at Jesus' baptism because he's, he has this unique access and depth and intimacy that he has in his relationship with his father because he is the son of God. Jesus lived and he walked more intimately with God than anyone else in human history. And it's because he's the son of God, he has access. Because the heavens were torn open, not at his words, but at the ripping open of his father to come be with Jesus as his son. So the first evidence that Jesus is the son of God is the heavens, the are ripped open. The father rushing to come be with his son. The second one is this, that the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. Immediately after he's brought up out of the waters, the heavens being torn open, as the heavens are torn open, we see something happens here. It's the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove. So not only are the heavens ripped open, but there's something that happens. This Holy Spirit come, comes and Jesus receives the Holy Spirit. And again, this is not the first instance that something like this has happened. Um, the Bible reports that God's Spirit has been with people before in human history. If you read throughout the Old Testament, you see numerous accounts of this. So Joshua. As he's about to lead God's people into the promised land, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is upon Joshua in his life. You see this with Samson. God was uniquely present in Samson's life. The Holy Spirit came upon him. When the Holy Spirit came upon him, he became this big bad warrior, right? Like he literally destroyed the Philistines. The Holy Spirit would come upon him and he did these things. King Saul I. King in all of Israel's history came upon King Saul as he's inducted as king of Israel. The Holy Spirit comes upon him and we see that God does unique things like him prophesying before God's people. This instance with Jesus is different though. And it's different for a couple of reasons. All right, here's the first one. With Jesus, the presence of the Holy Spirit is permanent and not temporary. Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit was not a temporal thing, but it was a permanent thing. If you look throughout the other instances where the Holy Spirit comes and fills God's people, it's for a designated purpose with a short length of time, or because of their disobedience, the Holy Spirit leaves this particular individual. But we never see that take place with Jesus in his life and ministry. Jesus is always has the Holy Spirit with him. So immediately after Jesus' baptism, what happens? He's taken out into the wilderness where he experiences the temptation for 40 days and 40 nights, and he conquers sin and temptation in his life. The Holy Spirit comes on him. He has the angels that are ministering to him immediately after this, and then we see Jesus go into his ministry, and it's like nothing the world has ever seen before. At Jesus' death and resurrection, we see that the Holy Spirit is uniquely involved in both of these accounts. So we don't see the Holy Spirit leave Jesus. He's the one that's with Jesus as he's on the cross being crucified. And he's also the one that uniquely resurrects him from the grave. Hebrews 9.14 and Romans 8.11 both give witness to both of these things. So the Holy Spirit is uniquely with Jesus in his life and ministry in ways that nobody's ever experienced it before. There's a permanent presence of the Holy Spirit in his life where it's only been temporal with anybody else. But not only was the longevity of God's Spirit with Jesus different than ever before, but also his reception. So the nature in which Jesus receives the Holy Spirit is different than any other account that we see in the entire Bible. Mark reports that the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove, Now, the only other instance where you get anything remotely close to this that happens throughout the Bible happens at the creation account where God's speaking into existence and then you see this verse in verses one and two of Genesis chapter one. Here's what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And here it is. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The one that says the word hover here is speaking like a bird hovering over the waters. So Mark does this with purpose. He's giving symbolism and significance because he knows that the people of God are gonna understand in their own minds as well as in their hearts what he is communicating About Jesus. What Mark is communicating here is that he is the second person of the Trinity. He is God Himself in human flesh. It was commonly believed that Jesus, at the command of the Father at the creation account, spoke creation into existence. We see a couple of verses in the New Testament that say this. So John 1, 1 through 3 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. There's no like stumbling over words here. John is very clear. Jesus is the one that spoke the world into the existence and he's also the one that sustains it. Colossians 1, 15 through 16, the apostle Paul writes this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, not meaning that he is the firstborn that he hasn't been in existence for all, but he's the firstborn of this new creation. As he's resurrected, he starts this new family line. For everything was created by him. So look, at at the, the sending of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus, it's different than any other account that you can find in the Bible because the Holy Spirit is permanently now with Jesus. He's with him in his life and ministry. He's the one that's empowering him to do all the things that he does in his life and ministry. But look, the nature of his reception is also different because Mark is showing the significance of what's happening at his baptism. He's saying, this is the second person of the Trinity. This is the one that spoke the world into existence. Mark is saying, this is the one. The one that we've been waiting for. The one that has been long foretold and promised, this is the one. He's finally come. He's here. So you have the heavens being torn open. You have the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus as a dove. And this all gives way to the most definitive evidence that Jesus is the son of a God when he declares, the father declares something over Jesus. We see this. He says this, after Jesus has been lifted out of the waters, the heavens are torn open, the Holy Spirit descends on him, a voice came from heaven, and he says, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. So look, the timing here is really important. This is really significant. When God declares this over Jesus, you need to realize that nothing in his life has really happened according to Mark. Like all that Mark has recorded before this is that John the Baptist has come before him making way for Jesus. And then this is the first thing that's recorded in Mark's gospel. There's there's no miracles from what Mark is reporting. There's no this divine inspirational speeches or teachings that jesus has declared this is the first major account that mark is recording about jesus in his life and here's why this is significant before the temptation and jesus overcoming sin before jesus has preached before jesus has done any healings the father affirms and approves jesus as the son of god It cannot be argued that Jesus, the only other time when the father speaks aloud over Jesus, declaring Jesus as his son at the transfiguration, that you can't look at that account and say, well, that's because all the things that Jesus has already done in his life is life and ministry. He's proven himself. He's done these major, these huge things And now God has finally received him and he can be declared over him that he's the son of God because of all the things that he's performed, all the things that he's done in his life and ministry. You can't make that proclamation because this is the first thing that happens in Jesus' life and ministry. The Father breaks open. He tears open the heavens. There's complete access. The Holy Spirit dis- descends upon Jesus in a unique fashion, in a way that's never happened before. And then the Father speaks over Jesus before he's done any preaching, before he's done any healing, before he's done anything. And he declares, you are my, my son, and you and you, I am well pleased. From the onset, God has fully embraced Jesus as his son and in front of the multitudes that came to them through John's baptism. So look, all these three instances point Jesus is the son of God. There's never been anyone like Jesus in human history. No one like him has come before. None like him have come before afterwards. And Mark is emphatic about this from the very beginning of his gospel account. So look, here's why this is really important to us. You can look at this account and you can think, well, this is really great for Jesus. <laughs> God, God doing all these unique things for Jesus, like, wow, that's incredible. But what does it have to do with me? Like, why is this relevant to you and me and my, our own lives and our own relationships with God? Well, here's why. Because Jesus, as the son of God, that means we too can also be children of God. Without this significant moment, without the true identity of Jesus being the son of God, listen, none of us, none of us in this room could actually be brought in as a child of God. So look, Think about this with me, all right? Ephesians 1, 5 says this. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. So look, here's what Paul is saying. And here's what we can bring out from this text from Jesus' baptism for our own life. One, you get Christ's access You get Christ's access to the God of the universe. So look, at Jesus' baptism, the heavens are torn open. They're ripped open. The the Father is coming to be with his Son, and Jesus had full access to the Father. The word torn here, the only other time that this takes place in the gospel account is at Jesus' crucifixion. You know what happens at that moment as Jesus is literally taking in his final breaths in this life before he's about to speak his final words what we see happen in the gospel account is that the torn the the curtain in the holy of holies is torn in two the only other time this word torn is used in all the gospel of Mark is in that significant moment so look here's what's happening When Jesus is at his baptism and the heavens are torn open, he gets complete access to the Father. But for us, at Jesus' crucifixion, whenever he is actually turned away from the Father and he dies in our place, the curtain is torn in two. The thing that was an obstacle, it was a sign or a symbol that we did not have unlimited access to God at Jesus' death is completely torn in two. And what the Bible is telling us is now by belief in Jesus, the very access that Jesus had to God, his father, is now available to you and me. So look, without Jesus being the son of God, without the work that he did throughout his life in ministry, without him Staying in his place on the cross, you and I do not have his access. but Because he is the son of God and he willingly died in your place, the free gift to us is the same type of intimacy that Jesus was made available to Jesus with his father who is in heaven is now made and given to us. We get the same unlimited access to God. As the heavens were torn open for Jesus, look, the curtain has been torn for us. You, you get access. The second one is this. You get the Holy Spirit. Upon belief in Jesus, God gifts us with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 says this. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. Look, this is the spirit that descended upon God's creation in Genesis chapter 1. And look, think about the significance of this. The symbolism that happened here. The Holy Spirit that descended on the creation of the world, the Holy Spirit who descended like a dove upon Jesus and he receives the Holy Spirit, that same Holy Spirit now comes upon us who are now a new creation. Do you see the symbolism that's happening there? The Holy Spirit descends on the very new creation that was spoken into existence. The Holy Spirit that descends upon Jesus and he receives in a mighty unique fashion is the same Holy Spirit that now, as the Bible declares us, the old is gone, the new is now here. We are made new creations in Christ. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells with us. The symbolism cannot be overlooked. You get this gift of the Holy Spirit, here's what this means. God's presence is with you wherever you go. So you have unlimited access that you get to come and talk to God, but not only do you have unlimited access because the curtain has been torn torn in two, he now goes with you wherever you want. In your workplace, in your home, in your neighborhoods, when you go overseas, wherever you go, God goes with you. The same spirit that lived in Jesus Christ now lives in us. This only happens because Jesus is the son of God. And then thirdly, you get God's approval. The next time the audible approval of God is spoken over Jesus, like I said earlier, was the transfiguration. So look, this transfiguration, it's a glimpse of Christ's glory as the natural born son of God. But look, since Jesus is the son of God and when we place our faith and belief in Jesus and we're, we're brought into his family, we now get the same approval as the adopted children of God. When Jesus sees his father in no doubt He's received, fully approved, fully accepted. We see that this happens before Jesus does anything in his life and ministry. Now look, the same is true for you. You don't have to do anything to earn his approval. The timing of Jesus' death is significant because the Bible tells us that when we were still enemies against God, is when Jesus entered into the world and died in our place and made us available to become children of God by full faith and belief in what Jesus has done for us. So look, he opens his arms, he scoops you up, he brings you in as the adopted child into his family and you don't have to do anything to try to earn it or deserve it before it happens. You get God's approval when we stand before him after this life is completed and he sees us and we get to enter into his physical presence for the very first time, like the first time that we get to like, he's here with us, yes, he's everywhere at all times. Nothing can hide from his presence. But when we get to be there physically present with him, when he speaks over you, it's gonna be well done, my good and faithful child fully accepted. You're fully approved. And this is only because Jesus is the Son of God. So look, application is simple for us tonight. It's to believe this. It doesn't matter if this is the first time that you're stepping towards belief in Jesus, or if this is something that's a constant struggle, and you're like, man, I Yes, I believe this, this is true. I believe once again. Like it's this constant reminder that we're living into this belief where the person that came to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Believe. Believe Jesus is who he claims himself to be. Believe that Jesus is who the father spoke over him at his baptism. He's the son of God. Uh, Tim Kohler, I think, kind of compacts everything that we've discussed so far in this little quote. He says this, Jesus is a true elder brother for anyone that believes in Christ and is welcomed into the family. This means that Jesus is now your older brother. He willingly brings us into the father's family at his expense. He died for us, He was plundered for us. We sit at the Father's table dressed in Jesus' clothes with his ring on our finger, and it's all through him. We must celebrate and live out the fact that we are members of a kingdom family, and it is all at the expense of our big brother, Jesus Christ. Do you live every day as if you are a member of God's family, accepted and loved? Look, here's a reminder for us. Remember A child in a family obeys, not in order to be loved and accepted, but because he's already loved and accepted by the one who brought him in as part of the family. The baptism of Jesus happened. It's significant for his life and his ministry. Literally, the whole concept of everything that he was called to do was put on the pressure and support of what happened at Jesus' baptism because he's the son of God. No one else could come and do for you what Jesus himself did. So look, through the son of God, you're made a child. You're fully accepted. This means you have complete access. It means you have the never-ending presence of God with you You have full acceptance and approval. And God's only requirement is that you have complete trust in what Jesus has done for you, not what you've done for Him. So, look, believe. Believe in Jesus. He's the Son of God. Let's pray.